you have your copy of Scripture this morning. We are in the book of Hebrews chapter 5. Book of Hebrews chapter 5. We will start in verse 11 and we will move through chapter 6, verse 3. Book of Hebrews chapter 5. We'll start in verse 11 and move through chapter 6, verse 3. Be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. The solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from the dead works and of faith towards God, and of instruction about washing, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. I've titled this message, Why Don't You Grow Up? Why Don't You Grow Up? There's an old saying that Um, kind of expresses how people feel when the preacher tends to get personal in his sermon. See, when the preacher is uh, preaching kind of a general sermon that um, is just, you know, it's not really confronting anybody, then um, he's preaching. Most people approve of that. Most people don't have a problem with that. But when he starts to get personal and starts speaking to real sin in the lives of people, they say, now preacher... You have gone to meddling. And this morning, there may be some meddling. We have all heard these words. We probably even used them before. Why don't you grow up? In fact, as children, we probably couldn't wait to grow up. If you were to go into my house, you would see some markings on a blackboard that that uh, sits there in our kitchen area because we uh, one day had to measure everybody's height and put a little mark there to know how tall they were. What we learned early on in our childhood is that we we wanted to um, be like the big kids. They, uh, you know, the big kids when we were children were uh, those kids that were like one or two years older than us and we would copy them and we would mimic what they did and we'd try to act like them because for some reason the big kids influenced us. And we wanted to be like them. And then later on in life, we got to where we wanted to just kind of get bigger and uh, be, be bigger than we were. And the reason why I find today is, is so we can ride the big kid rides at the carnival and and Six Flags and that sort of place. You know, you always go there and see the kids are like 
standing on their tippy toes and that sort of thing to see if they can ride the rides. They want to be, want to be bigger. And um, later on, we wanted to grow up so we could get our driver's license. Because what we find is that big kids, they get to do big kid things. And even as adults, we want to grow sometimes. And, and that could be physically, we want to grow our muscles or things like that. But often we want to grow in character or grow in who we are. I want to grow as a pastor and as a, as a preacher. Um, I'm always looking for ways to, to grow and, and better manage my time. And I'd have to admit that there are times that, that I act like a kid. I may have heard a time or two from people, why don't you grow up? To which I probably promptly responded, I don't want to grow up. I want to be a Toys R Us kid. Because um, that's just what I would say. But the author of Hebrews is writing here in chapter 5 and into chapter 6 out of grave concern that they are not grasping what he is saying to them. And he is concerned that they have not matured in their faith. And he is saying that saying that we like to use, why don't you grow up? And when we see an adult that's acting like a child, we say that. Why don't you just grow up? Why don't you act your age? And I'm not going to be able to get into all the theological implications and the issues in these verses. You can certainly study it on your own. But I do want to draw some lessons from this passage of Scripture that I believe will benefit us this morning. So let's look at some of these lessons of, that I believe will benefit us. First of all, childish Christians do exist. Childish Christians do, do exist. The first lesson that, that we can learn is that there are indeed childish Christians. Now perhaps you would ask, well, what do you mean by that? Uh, first, let me tell you what I don't mean by that. I don't mean is that you can be a follower of Christ and never grow. That's not what I mean. What I do mean is that growth rates in Christians tend to vary for many different reasons. We have all witnessed Christians who have become followers of Christ and they instantly um, are able to drop sin that has haunted them for so many years and they have uh, never fallen back into that sin again. We've witnessed that. We have seen Christians also that have struggled for a very long time to get rid of sin in their life and they can't seem to get rid of it. They have these habits and they may break away from those habits for a certain amount of time, but they keep falling back into the same old thing. And that's someone that's, that's maybe not growing at the growth rate of another person. Now look what the author of Hebrews says to them. He says to the Hebrew people, the Hebrew church, you have become dull of hearing. That's a real good compliment. You've become dull of hearing. What does that tell us? It tells us that there was a time when they were not dull of hearing. Their problem 
that they are faced with is an acquired condition. And they acquired this condition by a refusal to listen to spiritual truth. The only time this word dull is used in the New Testament is right here and in chapter 6, verse 12. And it means to be sluggish or slow. It means to lack energy. And what the author of Hebrews is saying to the readers is this. The reason that it's hard for me to explain these things to you is that you are spiritually lazy. Spiritually lazy. The spiritually lazy person avoids opportunities to get into God's Word because they would rather do something else like watch TV or surf the internet or even read a book. The spiritual lazy person has better things to do than to pray because they're too busy to pray. The spiritually lazy person avoids hearing the Word of God taught because they would rather stay home and go uh, and go uh, sleep in or go to bed early if it's a nighttime service or something like that. Listen, to the uh, to be dull of hearing, it's not a physical problem. It's a heart problem. It means, if you're dull of hearing, it means that your heart is not eager for spiritual things. Instead, you just like to be lazy. You just want to be spiritually lazy. In verse 11 is a revealing to us that the teaching of God's Word goes both ways. First, someone has to teach it, and hopefully they do so clearly, and secondly, it has to be received by the hearers. Stop and think about Jesus' teaching for a moment. Jesus, I think we would all agree, uh, was the best teacher ever. If you studied your scripture, you would you would probably have to agree with that. And he said more than once, he who has ears, let him hear. In fact, there are at least 77 times in the New Testament where Jesus tells people to listen or to heed or to hear what he is saying. This is the greatest teacher ever telling people to listen. If Jesus is teaching and the message is not being heard, there is a problem. The problem isn't with Jesus' teaching. The problem is with those that are listening. Let me just say, when, when the hearing is dull, the teaching is difficult. And as believers... You and I have a moral responsibility to know and to understand the Scriptures. The issue is with the heart. It's a heart problem, and far too often, we're not motivated to know the Scriptures. Jesus said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Matthew 5, 6. Now, what are hunger and thirst? They're motivators, right? They motivate us. When you're hungry, you eat. Some of us more so than others. When we're hungry, we eat. When you're thirsty, you get a drink. 
If you hunger and thirst for righteousness, it means you're motivated towards righteousness. And you will find satisfaction. But if you think, oh, it's no big deal, then you'll remain childish. You'll remain a childlike Christian. One last thing concerning this idea of, of childish Christians existing. You're either growing towards the Lord or you're growing away from the Lord. And what we often do is we trick ourselves into thinking that when, when uh, we don't read our Bible uh, or we don't have an active prayer life or we decide that we're not going to study God's Word, we trick ourselves into thinking that that means that we're just kind of staying stagnant in our, in our re- relationship with the Lord, that we just kind of remain the same. But the truth is that we're either growing away from the Lord when we refuse to grow towards the Lord. We we either growing towards Him or we're growing away from Him. The weight of the world, the lust of the flesh, the sin that besets us carries us backwards. You're being carried backwards. And so when we're not when we're not uh uh doing the things that we should be doing, you're not remaining in the same spot. You're going backwards. Let me be as clear as I possibly can be. If you are not making time to spend with God daily and reading His Word, if you are not spending time with God in prayer daily, then you're not growing towards the Lord, but instead, you're growing away from the Lord. You are going from eating meat to eating baby food. And baby food may be great if you're a baby. But it's not going to sustain you as an adult. Now I've heard of this baby food diet thing. I don't know if any of you have ever heard of this. But adults actually eating baby food. Well, Yeah, you're going to lose weight doing that. Because it can't sustain you. But we do that as Christians. Childish Christians do exist. The question is, are you one of them? And if you are... It's time to grow up. Grow up. You're either growing towards the Lord or you're going away from Him. Which is it? Number two. Second thing we learn here is that Christian growth requires understanding. Now, I want us to think about this for just a moment this morning. The author of Hebrews in verses uh, 1 through 10 was talking about Jesus as a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, meaning his reign as high priest and king is forever, and that he would, uh, you would think that he's going to continue that teaching, but he interrupts the teaching. And the reason he interrupts the teaching is because they can't handle it. They can't handle spiritual concepts like Christ's priesthood, and it seems like they have forgotten the fundamentals of the faith, even though they have had plenty of time to become teachers themselves, he says. Concerning time frame, he, he's telling them, in, in order of time, you should already be teachers. You should be capable of being teachers, but instead, you're a bunch of kindergartners. That is what he says. For though by this time, you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. Now, 
The Greek word translated there, basic principles, is the elementary stages of any subject. It's like the ABCs. So it's like the ABCs of the Word of God. They did not know the basic truth about Christian faith. Like, like who is Jesus Christ? What did He come to do? How can we have a relationship with Him? How do we live in our Christian life? They did not know the basics. He's speaking of their intellectual responsibility as Christians. But it is not just intellect. It goes beyond intellect. It's about taking responsibility for your spiritual growth and doing something about it. The more we know, the more we should want to learn about Jesus. Please understand that as Christians, there are certain fundamental principles and doctrinal foundations that are prerequisite to us in maturing in our faith and moving on to more complex truths. Before you can move on in any subject, You have to know the basics. The same is true in the Christian faith. We have to grasp the basics before we can move to deeper truths. Now, perhaps you would say, well, well, pastor, I've been a, I've been a believer for 20 years or 30 years or 40 years or however many years you've been a believer. Maybe you've been a Christian longer than I am old. But I'm here to tell you, that doesn't mean squat when it comes to spiritual maturity. There are some Christians that have been Christians for years. Years. And they're still babies. If you really want to know if you are spiritually dull, if you really want to know if you are um, growing as a Christian, then, then read through the Baptist Catechism I've made available. It's downstairs on our Welcome Center. Keep in mind that, that in the Reformed tradition, children would have to memorize a catechism. Typically, it was the Westminster Shorter Catechism before they could be confirmed and even join the church. You probably know the, the first question What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. You you may know that. But what about question number four? What is God? Answer, God is spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, and His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Question number five. Are there more gods than one? Answer, there is but one God, the only true and living God. How many persons are there in the Godhead? There are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in essence, equal in power and glory. Question number seven, what are the decrees of God? Answer, the decrees of God are His eternal purpose according to the counsel of His own will, whereby for His own glory He has foreordained whatever comes to pass. That's a good test. See if you're spiritually grown. That's a Baptist catechism that, that I made available. has 82 questions with scriptural proofs. Imagine if we actually took these things seriously and tried to learn it. Our understanding of doctrine would be far beyond where it is now and we would stop being um, toddlers and kind of walking around uh, looking foolish as Christians. 
Some of the things that's being taught in Christianity today absolutely blow my mind. If you really want to go deeper in your faith, you really want to know more about Baptists and the doctrine of Baptists um, and how we were founded, then you can pick up a copy of the Baptist Confession of Faith, 1689, in modern English. It's Essentially, it's the London Baptist Confession and basically the Westminster Confession, but Baptist understanding of the ordinances in that. Why? Because of late, it seems like the cool thing is uh, in Baptist circles is to be um, ignorant of what we actually believe. And to grow as a Christian requires understanding. When he is saying that by this time they ought to be teachers, he's not saying that in the sense that they should be teaching people as in holding some sort of office of a teacher or church leader, but he's saying it in a sense that every Christian who has been a believer for a few years or for a length of time should have enough understanding in the teachings of Scripture and the basic foundations that they could instruct a younger believer in how to grow as a Christian. All Christians may not be gifted teachers, but all Christians should know enough to present the gospel. They should know enough about the basics of the of the Bible and of the church and of Scripture. They, they should know enough that they could share it with other people. If you want to do that, then you are either, or if you're not able to do that, then you are either a new believer or you're an old believer that needs to grow up. Let me close out this point by saying this. We live in a time of dumbed-down Christianity. In fact, people don't even want to know doctrine, and they treat doctrine like it's some bad four-letter word. Like, he said the word doctrine. I better get out of here. They say things like this, doctrine just causes fights or division in the church So therefore, doctrine must be evil. There's just a slight problem with that. Paul wrote many letters, many of them to the churches, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Ephesians, Colossians, Philippians. He writes these letters... They're in our New Testament. And guess what they address? Doctrinal issues. Guess what Hebrews is addressing? Doctrinal issues. Don't you think if God thought it was important to have it in the Scripture, then we should find it important to study it? Every single believer has some sort of doctrine. And the question is whether it lines up with Scripture or not. Listen, theology is just comes from two Greek words. Theos, God, and logos, word. And from these two words, we get that word theology. Study of God. If you're a Christian, or even if you're not a Christian, you have some sort of theology. You have some sort of belief about God. You can't avoid it. 
You, you are a theologian. The question is whether or not that theology, theology lines up and harmonizes with the Scripture or not. Are you growing to have sound theology, sound doctrine, or is it shallow and unbiblical and all messed up? You see, we're not free to create God in our own image or to make Him bow down to what we think sounds nice and sounds good and, oh, well, that just sounds better than this. We're not free to do that. Much of what's being taught today is exactly what sounds good to us. Oh, well, that sounds good. That must be true. And it's not what the Bible teaches. This is much of what we find in the traditional traditionalist movement among the Southern Baptist Convention. They say things like this. It is not loving for God to damn someone for eternity if he could save them. And we hear statements like that. And we think, well, that sounds nice. That must be true. But it's not. It may be comforting, but it's not biblical. They are saying that if God has the ability to save a sinner but he does not exercise that ability, then God is unloving. Which, by the way, I've heard a prominent teacher make this statement. Well, if God exercised his ability to save all those that he could, then, guess what? Everyone would be saved. Everyone. So when we say, well, well, God must be unloving because he doesn't save everyone. Or, or if he could save them and he doesn't, then that makes him unloving. God could save everyone. And if he saved everyone according to his ability, then all would be saved and we would be universalists, meaning everyone would get to go to heaven. Furthermore, if salvation depended on man, then God would be an impotent God. Especially concerning salvation, because he couldn't save anyone without that person first cooperating with him. Listen, this kind of attack is attack on basic doctrine. And it's what's being propagated in many Baptist churches around the nation. And there are even Southern Baptist seminary presidents that back that statement up. Christian growth requires an understanding. It requires you and I to grow up. And not just be satisfied doing what we're doing. Number three, Christian growth necessitates obedience. Look at verse 13. He says, everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Those that are spiritually mature are described as eating Solid food. And then he says this. For those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. He calls the scriptures the word of righteousness. The idea is that God's word produces righteousness and those who believe it and obey it. And the person whose only food is spiritual milk is not obedient to the word. And in this case, they will struggle with discerning between good and evil. How do we know that? Because the verse tells us that. It tells us that a mature person is skilled with a discernment between good and evil. And the infant is not. And the Hebrews were reluctant to press, press on in their faith as believers. We don't, we don't know, but it, 
Why? But it prevents them from working out the deeper implications of the gospel. And it causes lack of discernment from good and evil on their part. Now, before you think that righteousness and good and evil are not learned, we need to pay attention to what the word unskilled is actually means. In, in the Greek, it's inexperienced. The whole idea is that through their experience in God's word, they will know and learn righteousness and good and evil and will grow and mature in their faith through their obedience. They will learn not only correct doctrine, but correct ethical conduct. This is good. This is evil. Because I am in the Word of God. Now, our practice behavior needs to be discerned and brought into obedience to God's Word. We live in a day and age where we are continually bombarded with all kinds of moral behavior. We, we see it on TV. We read it in books and magazines. We listen to it in our music. We see it on advertisements, even on billboards. We get it on our computers when we don't want it. We go on and on. We're bombarded with immoral behavior. This immoral behavior does not come to us in a way that seems immoral. In fact, if we're watching TV, the TV does not come on and say, stay tuned for an immoral advertisement. That's not what it says. Or we're about to show you something that's immoral. Get ready. Okay, we don't, we don't hear that. <clears throat> when you're driving down the highway, they don't have the billboard somehow blacked out that says, this billboard is immoral. Okay, it doesn't work that way. And here's what happens. It's not only not advertised as being immoral, it's treated as being desirable or morally neutral. Morally neutral is probably my favorite because Christians have been duped into thinking certain things are morally neutral. And as a result of this, many Christians believe that even homosexual behavior is acceptable and okay as long as they love one another and are committed to one another. In fact, in the latest studies, which are from 2014 by Pew Research, they found that some 36% of those who claim to be evangelical Protestants, which would include Southern Baptist churches, believe homosexuality should be accepted for those considered mainline Protestant, which would include American Baptist, United Methodist, Evangelical Lutheran, that sort of thing. The number jumps clear to 66%. That should be alarming to us. But you know why it's not so alarming? It's because we have continually, as a church and as churches and as the Southern Baptist churches, we have continually allowed the culture to infiltrate the church and influence the body of Christ and to influence the church instead of the church influencing the culture. Listen, I'm not, I'm not one of these guys that thinks you can't go to movies or watch TV. But when evangelical Christians, even Southern Baptists, go and watch the same smutty garbage and read the same trash like the rest of the culture, and they even try to defend it, defend what they're watching, 
and their right to watch it, and they rarely read their Bibles, is it any wonder that we accept sinful practices today? If we want to grow as Christians, we must be obedient to God's Word, not the culture. We don't know Bible doctrine just to fill our head with all this knowledge. We learn biblical doctrine because it makes us more Christ-like. Biblical doctrine reveals who we are and who God is. It reveals that we, that we owe God everything, not just some things. You know, this past week I decided that I was going to start reading through the Institutes of Christian Religion by John Calvin. It's, a, it's not a short read, okay? Just to let you know. But here's what I found after kind of skimming through the titles. It's all about God. Book one is of the knowledge of God, the Creator. Book two is of the knowledge of God, the Redeemer, in Christ, as first manifested to the fathers under the law and thereafter to us under the gospel. Book three is the mode of obtaining the grace of Christ, the benefits it confers, and the effects resulting from it. Book four is of the Holy Catholic Church. Now that does not mean what we think it means when we think of Catholics, so don't be confused but, but by what it says, but it's about the church in general. Everywhere, it's all about God, and it's grand. It's, it's good. I say with all that to say, I, I say all what I've just said to say this, and we'll move on. When you study your Bible or theology, you don't study just to obtain some sort of head knowledge. And be like, oh, I'm smarter than you, or I know more than you, or I know more theology than you. You study for obedience. And to live a Christ-like life. If we ever want to grow as Christians, we must be obedient. So in all of your reading, and all of your studying, you should be asking this question. What is in this study that I need to obey? We have seen that it is possibly a childish Christian, that Christian growth requires understanding, that it necessitates obedience. Now, let's see, foundational doctrines are essential to Christian growth. Now, I know what you're thinking. Good grief. How much is pastor going to talk about doctrine in one sermon? Well, until you get it. I mean, this, this is just what it's, I'm just preaching the text. Foundational doctrines are essential to Christian growth. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. The author writes, Let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. And then he gives us a specific list of six foundational teachings. Leaving this elementary doctrine is not meaning that we leave Christ behind, but instead it is saying that as believers we should mature in our faith and not settle for staying in infancy. They need to move beyond the foundational things. Foundations are good for building stuff. But once the foundation is laid, you don't go and lay the foundation again. We can't lay the same foundation over and over and over and over again, but instead we need to build on the foundation that's there. These six sayings are arranged in three parts. And there are differing views on how to interpret them. Some say, well, uh, they refer to the Jewish Old Testament 
uh, issues and others say that they relate to the basics of the Christian faith and still others say that they're a mix of the categories. One thing is for certain, and that's this, that the early church used creedal formulation as a means of preparing their converts. There's a story of D.L. Moody where he was approached by a stumbling drunk on the street who slurred out the words, Mr. Moody, I'm one of your converts, to which Moody replied, you must be because you certainly are not one of the Lord's. This is exactly what the Hebrew church is struggling with. And so they did their best to avoid bogus conversion by catechizing converts and the basic truths. Like I believe churches should be attempting to do today. Some form of a catechism. It's not a Catholic thing or it's not a Lutheran thing. It's a biblical thing. And what we have in these verses is the primitive catechism used in Jewish churches for converts. And so we have a glimpse of the basics you would have been been taught before being baptized and accepted in the Jewish church 2,000 years ago. So let's look at these three things. First, repentance from the dead and works and faith towards God. Repentance from dead works and faith towards God. This is the heart of the gospel. In this context, it is turning away from your dead works, which was the law, and from any attempt of self-salvation. These two can't be separated. You cannot trust Christ as Savior without turning from your sin. Repentance is at the very heart of the first steps in our walk with Christ. Scripture is clear. There is no authentic faith without repentance of sin. The author is not just talking about turning away from the ceremonial system of Judaism, but he is speaking of turning away from the wickedness and following after godliness. The temptation is to try to somehow earn our salvation. And we can't, because salvation is not based on our righteousness, but based on Christ's righteousness, which is imputed on us or placed on us. And so we have to leave behind any notion that we're going to work our way into heaven and trust in the atoning work of Jesus Christ and His righteousness, and that it has been placed on us. Salvation has always been sola fide, by faith alone. And so the first two basics that, that are mentioned here the first two basics with, with, uh, uh, that's being taught are, is the doctrine of salvation. Secondly, we have instructions about washing and the laying on of hands. Some translate washing. Some Bible translations may translate that baptisms, which is probably not a correct translation. The ordinary word for baptism is not used, and he uses a plural. The normal word was baptisma, and he uses the word baptismon, which generally describes ceremonial washings. There are also at least three different baptisms that these Christians would know about. First, the baptism of non-Jews, who were converting to Judaism. Second, the baptism of John the Baptist, which was a baptism of repentance. And third, the baptism of Jesus, which was done in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In fact, there was confusion on these baptisms. In, in Acts chapter 19, Paul's in Ephesus, and there he asks the men if they've received the Holy Spirit, and they respond with, no, they have not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And Paul asks, into what were they baptized? And they respond to Paul uh, with the baptism of John. You see, Paul knew they had not received 
Christian baptism. Very simply, the author is saying, you need to move on from these basic truths. Yes, they're essential to the doctrines that we know. The, the, the uh, baptisms and washings, that's, that's essential. But this is basic doctrine. Laying on of hands, it's, we, we should know about it, but it's basic doctrine. It's time to move on from that. And so these foundational doctrines deal with what's known as pneumatology or the doctrine of pneuma, which is the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Moving on to the final group. Given some instruction on the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. In the New Testament, these subjects have massive significance because Christ is central to both. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. Jesus is the judge, for we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. 2 Corinthians 5.10 Paul said, if the dead are not raised, then Christ is not raised, and our faith is all in vain. Jesus stands as our advocate, or he stands as our judge. This is the doctrine of the resurrection and judgment was the Christian doctrine of the last things or eschatology. So when we make ridiculous claims like theology or doctrine is not in the Bible, we need to be careful because it's all through the Bible. The point is, as believers, you and I need to learn basic Bible doctrine. These are foundational doctrines. These are essential to Christian growth. We need to build on them and not not know them and never grow beyond them. The reason why I recommend books on theology from the from the pulpit, the reason why I say, "Hey, I made copies of this of this Charles Spurgeon Baptist Catechism for you to pick up," or the reason why I say, "Hey, you should read the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith," is because those things will help you build a foundation. But then you can go deeper and you can read more books on doctrine or theology. Now quickly, I need to get the last point here because it's a doozy. And that's this. We must put forth the effort to grow as a Christian. Now I want you to um, look at two verses for this point. First, look back at verse 14. Because verse 14 says, um, trained, we're trained by a little practice. Right? Isn't that what it says? No. It says that you're trained when you practice like, uh, when you feel like it. Nope. What's it say? It says trained by constant practice. You know, when I, when I ran my marathon, first of all, I'm thankful that, that I had Sean Connor to help me run the marathon. But you know what? There were some days that Sean couldn't make those 20-mile runs. And on one of those days, I actually got lost. And I don't even know how far I ran. I ran all over the place. But let me tell you, there were days I didn't want to run. I didn't want to do it. I still run five miles a day, and there are days... I don't want to run. 
And everybody's like, well, Pastor, you're crazy. It's two degrees out. I'm not running in shorts, folks, just, just so you know. It's two degrees. But I do it constantly because it's, it's training. It's what you do if you're training. You know what the constant practice means in Greek? You know what that, that means when it says constant practice? It means constant practice. Well, actually, actually, it means systematic training by multiple repetitions. Systematic training by multiple repetitions. No athlete ever truly excels in their sport by dabbling. They work hours, day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year. They work and they work and they work. They deny themselves pleasures that distract from their goal. They work hard. And for the Christian, it means your goal is Christ-likeness. It requires effort. It means that those things that distract you from your goal, you cut them out. If it does not aid you to be more holy and to be more Christ-like, you stop it so you can move closer to your goal of holiness. If you need help in this area, then then let me know. I, I believe I have some extra copies of a of a great book called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. I'll, I'll give you a copy. And if I don't have one, I'll buy one to give to you. Uh, it, we have to practice. But I want to wrap this point up by looking at verse 3. Did you notice what it says? We will do all of this And then we have these three words. If God permits. The only way to move on to maturity, the only way that we'll grow as Christians is if God permits. It's not some sort of laissez-faire attitude, but to say that without God intervening then everything that was suggested to us is impossible to accomplish. I know I'm about out of time, but the only way that we can possibly move towards maturity is by God permitting us to do so. So let me share some snippets quick from a man I greatly respect, John Piper, and I feel that this is necessary before leading into next week's message, especially um, uh, these, these words, if God permits. And what I'm going to share with you is I didn't like pull word for word for him, but it's my own words kind of intermingled with his. So. First, that phrase, if God permits, means that God governs our maturity. You say, what do you mean? I mean that God does as He pleases and has the final say on whether you will conquer sin in your life and make any kind of progress towards spiritual maturity. He decides if you grow up and even how fast you grow up. We will see much of this clearly laid out in later chapters of Hebrews, but Let me make it clear one more time. God governs the progress of your spiritual growth. And He is not obliged to anyone to grant repentance because He does as He pleases. Because He is God. Which leads me to this. If we do advance in our spiritual maturity, it is not because of us, but it is solely because of God's grace. Hear me clearly, that does not mean that we do not put any effort into it. It means that it is still completely dependent on a sovereign God who owes you and I nothing. If you know Christ as your Savior this morning, it is because of God's grace. 
If you advance towards Christian growth, it is because of God's grace. You say, well, what if I haven't advanced? It is not because God is hindering you from advancing. It is because He is leaving you to your own will. So if you, if you know Christ and if you have not grown, it's not, it's, it, things aren't going good for you. And it's, it's not so we can be arrogant when we do grow. But it's for us to stand and tremble at the grace of God. That God by His grace would allow a wretch like me to first of all even come to Christ and secondly to even grow in my knowledge and grace of Him. It's solely by His grace. Thirdly, God sometimes commands what He forbids. God sometimes commands what He forbids. Now this is really difficult for us to wrap our mind around. So He commands us to grow in maturity, but He may forbid you from growing in maturity. So He decrees immaturity while commanding you to be mature. As I've said before, we see this in the death of His Son. God forbids murder, but yet He decrees murder of His Son. What all of those people did was predestined to occur by God, and yet it was still sinful on their part. And so God can forbid something that He decrees. This does not mean that God is sinful because there is a difference between sinning and God who is always pure and always holy decreeing something because the purpose of what He is decreeing is holy. Just because we can't understand it is holy doesn't mean it is not holy. Fourthly, this does not negate our duty towards spiritual growth. So what happens? We say, well, well, this is if, if God permits it, then that just means I, I shouldn't even do anything. If I'm going to grow, I'm going to grow. And if I'm not, I'm not. No. Just because God is sovereign and how He handles our spiritual growth does not remove our obligation towards spiritual growth. In fact, it should enable it as we understand God. And as we understand that He is working in us and that we will never grow Without Him. Therefore, we should be led into praying to God, knowing that our growth is completely dependent on Him. Fifthly, and finally, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God offers rest to the weary soul. These chapters in Hebrews are all instructions about persevering in faith and he warns the people and he pleads with the people and he trusts that God is at work in the people but ultimately he rests in the sovereignty of God listen there is no greater peace there is no greater rest in this world than knowing that God is sovereign and he does as he pleases and knows far better what is best for me than I do and church I'm not saying that you're going to understand that I'm not saying that you're going to wrap your mind around it. That when you're in the midst of pain and suffering, I'm not saying that you're going to say, oh, well, God just knows better than me. Boy, it sure feels great. But I'm here to tell you that God knows far better than you do. He is God. He has created every single aspect of your 
life. He knows all inner workings of your mind and of your heart. He knows your desires. He knows your will. He knows everything about you. He knows more about you than you know about yourself. And even in the midst of that pain, we can rest in His sovereignty. I found no greater peace and no greater rest than knowing that my God is sovereign. This we will do if God permits. And when it comes to spiritual growth, we do all we can. We fight as hard as we can to grow. We read as much as we can. We study as much as we can. We pray as much as we can. We share the gospel as much as we can. We do all we can in our Christian walk and in our Christian life to, to aim towards Christ-likeness. We do all we can to grow as Christians. But at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, we say, Lord, Your will be done in me for Your glory, not mine. Here's what I know this morning. Every single one of us in here this morning knows whether we're growing spiritually or not. You know. You've sat and listened to this message. You've ran tests in your mind. You know whether you're growing or not. And if you think that spiritual growth is just going to happen, it's not. If you think that growth will happen because you have some sort of, of haphazard Bible reading plan and some sort of haphazard uh, prayer plan, it's not. If you're not making some sort of deliberate effort towards spiritual disciplines in your life, then you will not grow. And if you are not growing towards the Lord, then you're growing away from Him. And the author of Hebrews says to you and to me, if we find ourselves in that situation, he says, why don't you grow up? It's time to move past being a child in your faith, and it's time to grow up. You need to work hard. You need to make preparations and plan, write, read, pray. You need to do all you can to advance the kingdom of God and to glorify His name in your life and give your life to His service. And when it's all said and done, we say, all of this I've done, it will bear fruit. All of this will cause me to grow if God permits. So come this morning Place your faith in God's sovereign power and His goodness because there you will find rest for your weary soul. Let's close with prayer.